millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back everybody to Fighting on Film. And this week we are covering a little known classic called A Hill in Korea. Because this week marks the 70th anniversary of the Battle of the Imjin River which was a pivotal battle in the Korean War in 1951. Um, those gallant Gloucesters. And uh, we wanted to cover a film set in Korea from a British perspective. And this is the only one that I think exists. There is no choice. This, this is it. Which is shocking, really, mm. when you think about it. Possibly wouldn't be the only one that exists because there was an Alan Ladd picture that was touted around in the mid-50s called The Glorious Gloucesters. They never got made. Yeah, I've, I've heard that that was, you know, a possibility. But mm. I'm I'm almost kind of glad it didn't get made. I don't really yeah. When Alan Ladd's not on it, when he's phoning it in like he's in, is it the Red Beret? Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Um, it's it's just there's no there's nothing there, mm. and I think I think the Gloucesters probably would have deserved something a little bit better than that. Definitely would. A Niven led picture, please. That would have been that would oh. that would have been excellent. Niven as James Khan in '56. Now that would have worked. Yeah. Before we go off into fantasy, <laughs> we should go into the plot. So the film opens uh, with a wide shot of some British troops walking through Korea, quote unquote Korea, filmed in Portugal. And opening narration says, 0600 hours on May the 10th, a patrol consisting of one officer and 15 other ranks left B Company four positions with orders to establish whether a village at map preference 638742 was occupied by the enemy. They crossed a wide area of open country, and the morning was uneventful. By 1300 hours, they were nearing their objective. So the interesting thing about that is it reads like an after-action report, and the film concludes with basically the end of an after-action report. I like it, mm. and I think it's a nice little touch 
it's certainly framing it in that military mindset and it's a very business-like film yeah it is so yeah it's a fighting patrol 15 men one officer a sergeant a corporal four brens and everyone else has got either stens or um number fours so they're quite well armed the more the better mm. armed than say uh, a section four brens you know that's significant firepower and an anti-tank section as well Yes, they do. Yeah, they have that. They have the um, the three point five inch rocket launcher, which is um, a fantastic inclusion. That's one of my mm. favourite things about this film. It's not the alley tally yet, Matt. No, no, hold me back. <laughs> <laughs> so keep him back. Yeah. Keep him back. <laughs> <laughs> they're on a patrol. They're looking for the Chinese. They, they turn up. They're basically probing to find out where the Chinese are. And I think it's set in about fifty one. Yeah, it would be fifty one. Doesn't actually say specifically, but yeah, it's fifty one. Yeah. It's an interesting mixture of national servicemen and regulars which is something that the film plays on heavily. They are on their way back from the patrol because they were tasked with checking a village. They checked the village and on their way back, they ran into Chinese troops that were approaching from the other direction. So they tried to get around them, but they couldn't. Um, And it basically, the film then ends as a classic sort of like last stand movie. Yeah. It's really evolves into this sort of Mm. will that will they survive? Won't they survive cliche? They're up on a hill uh, at, a, at a Buddhist temple, and they're under attack from you know Chinese forces. So that that's basically the film, uh, in a nutshell. And it's no frills. I mean, it's very sort of point A to point C with a little bit of point B in the middle. It's very sort of bang, bang, bang. There's your film. And it was, I think, it's telling because we think it was released as a double bill, which genuinely you don't get two top quality pictures. Yeah, on the double bill. They usually Michael K mentions that it was buried at the bottom of a, du- of a double yeah, bill. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because we'll come onto the cast now, and it's a, it's an obscenely good cast for the time. But uh, for now, sorry, but at the time, they're relatively unknowns. Um, so you've got George Baker who plays um, Lieutenant Butler. Yeah. Um, he was in the Dam Busters. Harry Andrews of uh, the Hill fame plays Sergeant Payne. He's brilliant in this. He's absolutely incredible in it. Stan Baker plays Corporal Riker, obviously Zulu, the cruel sea. He's no stranger to the Foff fans. Uh, Robert Shaw turns up as uh, Lance Corporal Hodge from uh, Battle of the Bulge, infamously, yeah. uh, and in Jaws as well, let's not forget. Michael Caine, in his first movie credit, which is amazing, looks so young in it, <laughs> almost doesn't look like Michael Caine. He does, yeah. Um, he plays Private Lockyer. Uh, Ronald Lewis, Private White. And uh, Harry Landis, who fans of Friday Night Dinner will know him as Mr. Morris, the sort of um, ratty, like, comic relief grandpa sort of type character in it. But he plays um, Private Rabin, and he's the sort of cheeky, bantery sort of um, national service. He's the comic relief. And I think yeah. really he's the film's mouthpiece. Definitely, yeah. Uh, he, he puts across everything that this film wants to say. He's always like, oh, put the put the Chinese in a, in a football um, stadium and then we'll fight and we'll, everyone will pay 10 bob to come see it. You know, he's all talks like a common man. He has some great lines, you know, like talking to the colonel, waving his checkbook, the sanest man in Korea describes himself yeah. as, and he has that great um, scene where he describes a monument to himself. And he says like, it's um, Jackie Rabin, the immortal soldier, died avoiding action, unwashed, undefeated, profaning victory, loused up in defeat. I love it. He has all the best lines, really. He's fantastic in it. Yeah, how we got how we didn't get nominated for anything is yeah a little bit surprising. The film doesn't get put up for any awards, no. which is a shame because now you look at that cast like there's stars, like bona fide every single one. There's also people that you know you recognise from films around that time and later on. You've got um, Percy Herbert, mm. who's a stalwart British character actor at that point. Dozens of you know classic war movies and Stephen Boyd. Oh yeah, you know he was a big name too. 
it's really interesting to see all of these people that have become, you know, household names of the late 20th century before their household names. Yeah, and they're not phoning it in because obviously they can't fall back on previous um, mega hit films to fall back on. I thought it was interesting. Stan Baker's putting on a on a like a, a speech impediment. Yeah, there's a bit of a stammer, isn't there? A bit of a stammer the first time you see him. I wonder if that's from the book. Well, it could be. Yeah, because uh, it's yeah. based on a book. The film is based on a book by um, Max Cato. Uh, it was published under the pen name uh, Simon Kent. Yep. Um, Cato wasn't a Korean war veteran. Interesting. And not many of the cast were. No. Only Kane. Only Kane. Kane was the only uh, only national serviceman that, that had been in Korea. Obviously, there was people that had served, and there were people in the cast that had been national servicemen. You know, Harry Andrews had been in the um, uh, Royal Artillery. And Stan Baker had been in the Royal Army Service Corps. Uh, Victor Madden had been in the Merchant Navy. Mm-hmm. Percy Herbert had been um, Royal Ordnance Corps. Wow. And he was, a, he was a prisoner of war with the Japanese. Oh, wow. You've got plenty of military experience to draw on. Yeah, um, yeah. They don't look wrong in it. They don't. They don't look like actors trying to be soldiers. They do look quite natural in it, um, and I think that you know that obviously harkens back to the days of national service when everyone would have had at least some military training. So it's produced by Wessex Films, and it was released on the eighteenth of September, nineteen fifty-six. I dug up from the archives a retro review, which we always like to read out if we can. Ooh, brilliant! So this comes from the Sunday Mirror on the twenty-third of September, only a few days after release, nineteen fifty-six. When it comes to realistic war films, the British usually hit the spot. A hill in Korea is no exception. The fighting scenes are tough enough to give even the most enthusiastic volunteer a whole heap of second thoughts. A young officer, George Baker, and his patrol of national servicemen who are about as battle-hardened as a troop of girl guides are cut off in Korea. They are charged, sniped at, bombarded by the Chinese, blasted by their own planes. The survivors win though, with jutting chins, grim faces, and visions of a Saturday night at the Palais firmly fixed in their minds, this movie may not get the army many recruits, but it will win them a lot of film fans. Good review. Yeah, it's a darn good review. It's an interesting production. So mm. it's an hour and 21 long. Yeah. So it's not, not an overly long film. Not long at all. It's directed by uh, Julian Ames. He did Jane Eyre in the 80s with uh, Timothy Dalton. He only did two feature films. So we did Hill and Career, and they did A Miracle in Soho, which was a kitchen sink-ish sort mm. of drama. Something like that. No, popular in the 60s. And he predominantly did um, TV work before and after. So that's what he mm. you know, became known for. Um, yep. Screenplays by Anthony Squire. Again, not a Korean War veteran, but you know, an experienced um, writer, TV director, uh, second unit director, that is. Mm. So he knew how to do set piece. Definitely. You know, and, and action sequences. Co-writing with him was um, Ian... Daryl Impel? Difficult one to pronounce that. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it to you because you had something to say about him. He was involved in the Crown Film Unit in the Second World War and he was a um, producer on some really famous Ministry of Information films. Um, so he was a producer on Target for Tonight, uh, The Lion Has Wings, Fires Were Started, pick a big mm. Crown Film Unit hit. And he probably was involved. I mean, wow. and you can see the... In some sequences, like the the way the shots are done, it's very sort of like matter of fact. I want to show you X. Here is X. I don't know how to say it. Like it's quite um business like. Business like, yeah, filmmaking, yeah. But it yeah, works. it's interesting you should mention the cinematography because it was um it was Freddie Francis's first film. Mm. And Freddie Francis is an Oscar winning cinematographer. He won an Oscar in I think nineteen sixty for uh, Sons and Lovers. Okay. And then the one that, you know, stands out to me is he won an Oscar for the cinematography on Glory from 1989. 
the American Civil War movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Which is a mm. you know beautifully shot film. That is. I mean, what a trajectory. What a trajectory. <laughs> mm. <laughs> what, so this what, was his what? first film, and wow. you know, there's glimmers of that. You know, like that um, that skill definitely. Mm. Mm. So the film was shot uh, on location in Portugal. Yep. And at Shepperton Studios. And the score was done by Malcolm Arnold, who actually won an Oscar for the score for uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Wow. Yeah. That is great. And lastly, before we move on to Ali Tally, we couldn't move on any further without talking about Michael Caine's experiences on the film because it's quite funny um, what, what he gets up to. So he's brought in as an actor slash military advisor. And I'm not sure if he was brought on as an advisor and then they gave him some lines or whether he was brought on as an actor and somehow said one day, I was in Korea, <laughs> you know, like just on set. Awful, awful Michael Caine there. <laughs> yeah, he writes many years later. He says, my function as technical advisor was completely ignored during the making of the film. For example, I was advised the crew to spread the troops as wide as they could as the latter advanced, which is military correct. Mm-hmm. But they replied that they didn't have a lens of sufficient width to take it all in. I also pointed out that the officer would have removed his signs of rank and worn a hat, the same as the other men, to disguise which one was in command. But George Baker was allowed to go into battle with all his badges and hat gleaming, which an officer in a real fight who would never have lasted 10 seconds. Yeah, he does have his pips. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He does, yeah. Takes them off at the end, I noticed. Does he? Yeah, I think I he rips them that. off at the end, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, but he does have the same hat, though. But he is wearing a yeah. rather nice cravat. He's wearing a spiffing, like, proper, like, dotty number, isn't he? Yeah, I like that. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, there's a set photo, which is in colour, mm. and it's burgundy. That Now that that will play off lovely off that green. Remind the lads of Christmas back home, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I like that but little yeah, touch Yeah, it's interesting anyway. you should mention that they told them to spread out, because I noticed when they were approaching the village, they were quite well spread. Yeah, they weren't too bad. Probably not as well as they should have been. But, yeah. You know, for a war movie of the 50s, pretty yeah, good. Bad. And then the last thing Michael Caine said, the most glaring mistake that never brought to their notice was that Portugal did not least resemble Korea. If anything, Wales was more similar. I did not say anything because I wanted to stay in Portugal. I could go to Wales any old time. <laughs> <laughs> they paid me a beer, so I might as well enjoy it. <laughs> I did see another quote from him, um, I think from either an interview or one of his, his books. And he, he says, I had eight lines in that picture and I screwed up six of them. <laughs> it's so there's, really one, true. Yeah. there's one where they're marching and he goes yeah it's probably morning or something like that and then there's the famous one that always gets put in michael kane documentaries you know that kind of thing mm. where he comes down the stairs in the temple and he says pity he was the toughest bloke we had but to be fair blink and you'll miss him anyway because and, and blink and you'll miss a lot of the characters so there's a couple of scenes where you can yeah. see where they've caught him there's a bit where he's in the tower next to uh, george baker and it looks mm. like he's about to turn and say something and then it just cuts away. Do you think now, though, whoever owns the copyrights of this film is probably really annoyed that they can't do an, an edit that has more cane in it to make a bit of money? Oh, yeah, no doubt, because that, that'll be long gone. Yeah. Those, yeah. whatever whatever landed on the cutting room floor is long gone. I'm surprised um, they've not rushed an, uh, like a reissue out that has Kane as the, the main actor on the billing. Oh, Kane, like, holding the brain gun. Like, <laughs> the, the well, like modern day Kane, like, really, like... <laughs> Oh no, it's Big Brent. That'd be brilliant. She was so, just 14 years old. <laughs> Pass me another Brent, Mac. This is my English Brent. <laughs> I think we should 
<laughs> With that, I think we should move on to the alley tally this week. I think so. It's time for Alley Tally on Fighting on Film. So this week's Alley Tally is um, going to be chock full of brands. <laughs> yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. Uh, so for me this week, my Alley Tally is just seeing Korean War British Infantry in film because that is very rarely done um, and rarely seen. This is it. And this is it. Yeah. For, for now, this is it. Perhaps the anniversary will reinvigorate some interest in the British mm-hmm. um, um, in Korea, because I, I, for one, would love to see it. But yeah, it's they're wearing deserved. their summer. Much deserved. They're wearing their summer uniforms. They've got their summer uh, hot weather caps on. 44 pattern webbing, which is really nice to see. Mark V Stens, number four Lenvo rifles, and Brens, and... Uh, 3.5 inch bazookas oh and not forgetting um uh, baker's or lieutenant butler is uh, enfield number two mark one. Oh yes the revolver which you see ever so briefly he does pull it he pulls it on white didn't he when he tries to escape he's got all the heavy hitters um mm. all the classics um obviously the only one that was different there from you know world war Two is the 3.5 inch i think this is Definitely the only depiction of it in British hands. In film, definitely. It's possibly one of the best on-screen depictions of a 3.5-inch. Not many others, but I think this is a really good one. Mm. Well, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Well, definitely. But they're see- I like the fact they're seeing carrying it all the way through. It, does- it just doesn't appear when it's needed. It-, it, You know, these guys actually have a role to play, so they have to hump the thing around. You know, you've got a radio man who doesn't like humping the radio about. You, know, you can tell some of these men aren't... Not everyone's versed in the Bren... But they're all carrying Bren magazines. So in the scene where they need all four Brens, everyone produces their Bren magazines and gives it to the gunners. I like that little touch. Whoever's saying, look, we all carry Bren mags because we've all got to supplement the Bren team. Exactly. I like that little inclusion because it means someone on set was like, no, no, it's done this way. Yeah, that's been, that was doctrine since before the you know, Second World War. Of course. But not many films, you don't really ever see no. it where someone produces a Bren mag for the Bren who's not a Bren gunner. As a diversionary effort, um, Lieutenant Butler decides to put four men, fire team, with all of the Brens on a burial mound. Yep. And they only rise in the ground in the area um, and draw the the Chinese in sort of to probe them and, you know, thinking they're a larger element and then opening up on them when they get within range. Mm. And that scene is is excellent. I don't know whether we're going to talk about that in. Yeah, we'll, go, we'll save it for five scenes because... I think so. Action is a bit thin on the ground in this one. There's two major parts, and we're going to cover both of them in the first scenes. That's why we didn't go in depth with plot, because uh, it's basically the plot. So, yeah, and then the other thing um, that I just like to see was sort of the fif- more 50s influence of, of sort of hairstyles were a little bit more rockabilly sort of and look. Baker's, um, and George Baker's prescription glasses. Such a nice little touch. And they're, mm. they're not things that obviously would have been... They'd have just been normal when this film comes out, but now... It is a contrast to the Second World War films, just additions that sort of make it career and don't make it a a flick set in Burma, for say. It has that look, Mm. that Mm. that 50s look, that sort of like Korea, Malaya, Borneo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rad fan feel. And they've got their their Bergens on and their their packs on as well. It's Mm. really nice to see. And machetes as well, which is ace. Yeah, there's a a lot of interesting stuff. weapons wise in this movie so the chinese have a madsen like machine gun yeah 
which is one of the first light machine guns ever developed. Um, and that isn't un- unlikely because no. a, lot of them, a lot of them did make it into China um, before and during the revolution, you know, and the, okay. the civil war. Yeah. So that's not something that, you know, would be, you know, unusual. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the rifles that they have are a bit unusual though. Yeah. I couldn't they pin have, them. They have Mauser. I think it's, I think they're 1871s. Right. I don't know. You don't get to see them close enough. No, you don't. But the way you can tell is they have that side-mounted bayonet. Right. And the shape of the bolt. I knew you'd know that. Kind of tell that way. They're in place of sort of um, Mosin Gants. Mosins, yeah. Yeah. Um, and possibly some like um, Chinese uh, Mauser K98K copies yep. that they did. There's also like a, a submachine gun that's seen in a couple of scenes in Chinese hands. Not quite sure what and it is, are we? No, I, I can't make no. it out. It, it's bugging me. It's a horizontal mag. Yeah. Um, standard sort of like traditional stock, no pistol grip. No. But it's not like a Bergman uh, MP28 or an MP18. It kind of reminds me of, a, of an MP41, which is by the barrel profile. Yeah. But the magazine's not in the right place. So I don't know. Anyway, my copy of the film and even the copy that um, Talking Pictures recently played couldn't quite make out there's not a real crisp version of the film is there it's 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 a bit sadly not mm. and then the i think the last thing so towards the end of the film there's a, an airstrike called in i thought they were gloucester beaters because i was like oh gloucester beaters they've got to be like it's a british film in korea they have to be gloucester beaters come on and then i was like oh hang on no they're not um they can't yeah, be they have those end of wing pods yeah yeah um and matt found out what they were so they're actually lucky t33 Shooting stars. Wow. And I found that out because I was I realized the film's made in Portugal. So I thought, well, what what did the Portuguese Air Force have in 1956? So look that up. T-33 shooting stars, training planes. So yeah, there you go. I think that's what they are. They could have got away with using Mustangs. Oh yeah, yeah. Because they were used, they could have got away with using uh, Typhoons as well. Uh, some Australian units really early on were still using Australian Air Force units were still using typhoons and things like that. So you could have got away with World War Two vintage. So, yeah, definitely. Because um, yeah. you're just dropping nine, nine times out of ten, you're dropping napalm. But they probably wanted the cool kit, didn't they? they you know, it's it's a movie. They always want the good kit. It's the jet age. They want a jet. Of course it. Uh, of course it is. Yeah, I didn't. Th- I didn't. I didn't think that. Yeah, no, that's. So I think that's why. And you know what? They they look. They look legit. They do. Um, they do. So yeah, that's cool. Oh, and the only other thing is the tank. Yes. Chinese tank. The Chinese Cromwell. I'm gonna say it's captured. Gotta be. I mean, isn't there isn't there some story of a Cromwell going up against a Centurion? I don't know. It's in one of those one of those clickbaity. It's probably a Mark Felton video about that. I think there might be. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking. It's not wrong, which was nice. You know, not like it's a. It's not like a leopard in a bridge too far, is it? It's like oh yeah. I suppose you know, there's stories from Imjin where you know they they were napalming centurions that had been knocked out, you know, mm-hmm. they, and they were napalming them to make sure the Chinese didn't get their hands on. You know, Centurion's the best tank in the world at that point. Like you don't want you, you don't want a reverse engineered Chinese Centurion coming over the hill. <laughs> be, Definitely be, not. Be a bit upset. Um, so I don't know whether he would have done the same thing to a to a, um, a Cromwell. Mm. Possibly not. I don't know. But you know. Yeah, it's definitely a Cromwell. It's not a comet. That, that some it's not. Think yeah, it some sources do say a comet. Completely different turret. Right hole, yeah. different turret. Yep. I wonder if they were in Portuguese service. They must have been. Oh, that's a good. Yeah, maybe they were. Which is interesting. Tank experts, notes on a postcard, please.
So there's only two real standout scenes. Me and Matt will, will do both. Start the film. They've established that they've gone to the village. One of their lads buys it. Unfortunately, um, there was a booby trap set by two um, Chinese sympathetic Koreans. Yeah. Um, and they were running away and um, Baker uh, Baker goes and shoots them. He looks hard as nails when he comes back. Yeah, you know, rifle over his shoulder, just sauntering back into the village. But that's the thing. In the, in the film, all of the quote-unquote named actors playing the regular soldiers, they get the meatier parts, which I think is quite interesting from a casting point of view. So as they're making their way back from the village, they see a Chinese column coming up to to. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. George Baker realizes they haven't been seen. So he tries to trick the, um, the Chinese forces into thinking that there's more of them. So they break branches off a tree. And as they run up to this mound to set up their brens, um, they make dust behind them. So it looks like a larger force is, is behind the ridge. It's quite clever like that. And then, yeah, they start digging in. They set up their brens. Harry Andrews and the rest of the lads try to double back round um, to, to uh, miss out the column. And then you just get Brenageddon. The most gratuitous Bren I've ever seen. It's so good, it's, isn't it? It's peak Bren porn. It really is. There's no other film better that does does more Bren no, than no. this film, I don't think. And if you want to see four Brens with blank adapters going for it, this is the film for you as well. So did you notice that it cuts back between the blank firing adapter and standard barrels? So it cuts between... So there's a couple of Mark 3s with the shorter barrel and there's a couple of Mark 2s yeah, yeah. with the slightly longer barrel and it cuts between them. Mm. So when they're not firing, they're the proper barrels. You obviously, I said in the, in the alley tower that you get a bit where they're giving each other the, the ammunition. Yeah. Then you get a bit with a, a jam. Harry Landis, uh, Private Rabin, gets a jam and he's like, oh, it's jammed, it's jammed. And the, it's a moment of jeopardy, that, isn't it? Because he's, he's panicking. There's real panic. Real, he's like, it's just jammed, it's jammed. And then uh, George Baker, the lieutenant, goes, um, check the regulator. He, he gets a, a spent round and you see him fiddling about with the regulator on front of the Yeah, gun. just change the gas setting so, it's, so yeah. the port's more open because they're lying in like a sandy burial mound. Yeah. So yeah, the dust's going to get in the action and it's going to slow. And, the, you know, they've put a lot of rounds down so it's going to foul. Mm. So, you know, open up the gas port a little bit, a bit more gas going into the action cycle it and it, it works perfectly they absolutely hammer these chinese troops that are coming in human yeah. wave attacks that's quite well done you know we get a, a good idea of a large number of chinese which is you know and they do probing attacks which is something the chinese did as well isn't it yeah they do yeah, yeah so yeah. they didn't you know the chinese were quite well known before imjin for doing sort of probing attacks not just going all in you know yeah. once they found what they thought was a weakness then they do a human wave attack but no it's just nice to see you know in a Korean war film, just out of nowhere, 
loads of brains. It's just great. I had in my notes, so coined a new phrase, BBE, big brain energy, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I will now use. Another another element of that scene that I liked is the bit where there's a lull and they're reloading mags. Mm. And Robert Shaw's character, um, Lance Corporal Hodge, takes Rabin's mag off him and says, you, you're messing that up. And he strips out two rounds. Yeah. And puts, you know, and puts one in, hands it back to him. He says, you'll mess that up, you'll get us killed. And I think that's a, like a sort of like a, a nod to rim jam. I think it might have been, yeah. You know, he's not he's not lining up the, the rims properly. Well, it's another dig at him being national service. That's what I thought. Because mm-hmm. all the regulars are digging the national service lads at any opportunity they get. Because Harry Andrews and Baker's character is always like, oh, don't worry, sir. I know you're national service, but I think you're doing a good job. It's always a little bit like that. Yeah. Shaw has a lovely little line when the, the cacophony of the Chinese bugles kick up and the cymbals. And he says, proper jazz session, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Great. <laughs> the banter's quality in this film. It is. And that's something I think we'll talk about in a little bit. But I, I think the, the chemistry amongst the cast is excellent. You really know, good. I think it, I think they've nailed the right amount of like complaining and banter. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably say it later, but it's, it's complaining behind the scenes. So you're never openly complaining to your officer and your NCOs because, you know, you respect them. But in your with your mates, you're wax lyrical. Yeah. I like that. Tell us about Bazooka versus Cromwell. Ooh, yeah. So that that is my pick. Um, so they fall back on a temple on a hill which is uh, has a cliff to its rear. So it's a relatively good last stand position. There's only one way the Chinese can come up. And somehow the Chinese get a, a Cromwell, a tank up up a mm. hill track, which is, you know, quite impressive. There's a lovely little scene where the 3.5-inch or M20 Super Bazooka, as it was known in American service, comes into action. And Lieutenant Butler calls up um, for the 3.5-inch. Uh, and there's a really interesting bit where they, they're talking about um, why they haven't fired. And he says, I'd prefer to be closer, like with, within 80 yards. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's well well within um, what the 3.5 was capable of. So the 3.5 was capable of hitting a stationary target at around 300 to 350 yards. Right. So they could have hit that tank, no bother. Yeah, I thought that as well when they were like, I was like, you can hit it from there. Come on. Yeah, so if you had if you had an M1 bazooka, like the first bazooka, then yes, you'd want to be closer. If you had a Piet, then yes, you would definitely want to be closer. But with a 3.5 inch you can reliably hope to hit a target at 300 yards, which is well within what it was. It was probably like 200, 250 max at that point. Mm. But yeah, they go forward. They go forward to a slit trench, um, which is about probably about 80 yards away from the tank. And he puts two rounds into it. He puts one into the hull and then another into the uh, what, the track, yeah. which is really nice. And it's sort of like the, the tank slides back down the hill. And it's like, what are you aiming at? Because I'm trying to take the track out. Yeah. Did it to his mate, who's the number two. So that's quite funny. Just the banter in the heat of the moment, I, I really like in that scene. Because it's just like, come on, shoot the tank. Like, come on, I want to go. <laughs> and he's just like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to actually aim a shot here. It's like... The only way that scene could have been better would be if they'd showed it being loaded. Yes, that's the only thing. They did... Because that's always cool to see. They showed it from broken to being set up, which was nice. They did. Like and they that. show it being taken apart again as well, which is very cool. Really cool. Because they're actually quite light. Mm, it's just a tube, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a tube, and they break down into two pieces. But it's really interesting to see in a, in a film, and especially in British hands. 
Yeah. Probably one of the most nifty bits of kit that the British troops have out there. Definitely. And it was brand new. Yeah. So I, I actually own a, um, a provisional pamphlet. Okay. Which is the training manual for the 3.5 inch. The first draft came out in 51. And then the secondary draft was finalized in April 52. Wow, that's quick. And then you get, the, then you get the, the final sort of like little blue small arms training pamphlet. Up until that point, British Army's infantry anti-tank weapon was still the pit. There are actually like photographs of pits in Korea. Mm. So there are photographs that are believed to be Korea. So there were pits there. Yeah, yeah. So if it had been a pit, then the 80-yard comment would have been totally legit. Mm. But for a 3.5-inch... Inclusion of a Cromwell. I mean, when do you ever see Cromwells in film? Yeah. Yeah, come on, you know. That might be actually the only time a Cromwell's ever seen in a film. Possibly. Oh, no, there's some in... Well, there's some in Band of Brothers. Is there? Okay. In the Nijmegen episode, I think there's a Cromwell there. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get heavy MG use, LMGU, sorry, a, a bazooka scene, and then a, a napalm strike right at the end. I mean, come on. Yeah. They're like the three major things you want. And it's and that is literally the unfortunately that is literally the film though, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, it's interesting. So I suppose we should talk a little bit about the characters and how they develop and what the actual film is trying to say. Um, now that we've done the, the the cool kit and the cool scenes, the film has an agenda, and I think that Harry Landers's character, Private uh, Rabin, is the mouthpiece of the film. You know, he's always talking about the dynamic between the West and China and North Korea. So he's talking about, you know, their differences and, you know, why the, why the Chinese are, you know, why they're more likely to fight because they haven't experienced the pleasures of the West sort of thing. Like he doesn't, you know, they don't know the, the joys of going for a pint. He talks about, or, you know, yeah. queuing, queuing to get into a club or, you know, going to watch a football match. Because this is still very height of communist fear. It's, it's weird in that it isn't totally anti-communist. It isn't rapidly anti-communist. Obviously, everyone. It's a very. It's very much a film of its time. Everyone's, you know, um, describing the enemy as like uh, gooks and chinks, yeah. slant eyes. Yeah. So there's a lot of sort of like racial slurs and stereotypes in there. But you know, it's a film from the film from the fifties. I mean, God, and yeah. It's a, and it's that is exactly what they would have said anyway. Yeah. I mean, there were still British troops out in Korea in fifty-six. At peacekeepers, oh, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, it's yeah, it's of its time. I mean, obviously, it's now. It's like God, you know, calm, calm it down. The slurs, lads, you know, it's a bit. But that's it. It's soldiers. It's soldiers in the field fighting an enemy. Of course. And you're not yeah. gonna, you know, you, there's gonna be no holds barred when it comes to like describing your enemy. No, of course. Especially yeah. when they're trying to kill you or they killed your mates. They're gonna, they're gonna bring out the slurs, aren't they? No, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they probably would have dialed that down if this film was made today. Mm. And I think that would take away from, you know, the reality of the dialogue. And I think it's interesting, you know, that we have Landis talking a lot about the interplay between the West and China and, you know, communism. But mm. then at the same time, there's a lot of talk about the class elements and the bouncing off of regular and national servicemen. Yep. So it's, it, it's a film that's sort of like trying to get across. The British army is sort of broken up into the two parts the regular soldier so you've got harry andrews you've got um stan baker stan baker yeah and then you've got your um your part-time well not part-time but your conscript your conscript soldier 
Um, younger, possibly younger as well. A lot younger well, soldiers yeah, as well. yeah, I mean, well. there's a really nice scene in the village where um, Harry Andrews, who plays Sergeant Payne, tells the two Korean villagers to emshi, yep. which is Arabic for go away. And that is a <laughs> lovely hint that he is a, a career soldier that has served around the world. So he might have been in North Africa. He might have been in the Middle East. So this, uh, that yeah. just little inclusion is sort of a thing. He's a regular soldier who has served around the world and mm-hmm. he's picked up these words. And there's just something about the way that like, I don't know whether it's just maybe reading too much into it, but the way Harry Andrews like handles himself as well in it, he feels more at home. Like possibly that's from his time in the Royal Artillery, but the way he's holding his sten in some scenes and definitely think so. Just little, little bits mm. sort of. And then I don't know if it's a conscious thing, but Landis, when he's lugging that Bren about, he looks like he, he wants to be doing anything, but, you know, and you've got Wyatt with the with the radio, you know. Yeah, we should talk a bit about Wyatt because his character's pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean he's well he's played to be a bit of a bit of a, a coward, isn't he? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's where that class element comes in. So he's talking about I'm different, I'm not like the others. That's it, yeah. Over and over. So they're in the temple and he's talking to George Baker. And I think Wyatt sees Butler as more of a, you know, um, more akin mm. he sees himself as you know he has more in common with baker than he probably does with you know uh rabin or you know sims or, or um lockyer yeah um what he's what he means when he says i'm different i'm not like them i was brought up in a nice home etc and he talks about his sort of like upbringing and he doesn't want to be in a war no no one really wants to be in a war there except except stan baker's character and probably harry andrews you know yeah the career soldiers so the interesting thing is it's that dynamic of yes national service is a melting pot of class but that man's experience of class is manifested as cowardice yeah 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 because he isn't used to sort of the roughness of life i think they're trying to get across yeah I think and so. then at the end he has that sort of scene where he sacrifices himself he, he bayonet charges Mm. Um, Chinese machine gun position. See, because I, I thought by that time, I thought that's he was doing that because in his brain, that's gallantry. Mm. That's what you do in a war. You like act bravely, but it was actually quite futile and not stupid, but it was a bit futile what he did. Yeah. Sort of thing. So I thought, oh, that's him trying to prove his character, like prove his worth to everyone. Yeah. And it's immediately preceded by that really striking scene where he tries to desert. Yeah. He's there and he shouts, comrades. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he's trying he's trying to sort of cross over to Chinese lines. Because mm. that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. definitely. And then Baker's like, look, don't make me shoot you, because I will. Yeah. That character's very interesting. He's played by uh, Ronald Lewis, mm. who does a decent job, I think. Um, yeah, it's good. I think that and- some of the dialogue, that some of the actors aren't given enough to do. No, they're not. You know, like people like Percy Herbert is not yeah. given enough to do. Um Robert Shaw isn't really given enough to do. Um, you could argue like Stan Baker's a bit underused. He plays a very one-dimensional but interesting character. So as Corporal Riker, he's he enjoys being a soldier. It's clear, like he's on the same wavelength as Andrews' uh, yeah. character, Sergeant Payne, and you know he very much enjoys being there. He relishes, you know, a fight, and you know that's his downfall in the end as well. He's just a hothead, isn't he? You see him kill those two Korean villagers. Yeah. And then later on, he's trying to, because um, he was put on a Bren, 
like in a forward slit trench at the mm-hmm. temple. And then when he's running back to the temple to try and set up another fire position, he like sort of, I think the Bren gets hit with a, or his rifle gets yeah, hit. Yeah, so like rounds are landing near him and he gets he gets pissed off. Yeah, he turns around, he's like, you yellow and such and such. He keeps mouthing. You, you know, you yeah. can tell he's laying down some obscenities, but you can't hear it over the Bren gun. No, of course you can't. You know, he gives him a burst from a hip of a Bren, which is one of the immortal images of this movie is Stan Baker giving it some of the Bren. I mean, come on. On the poster. Yeah. Uh, it is on the poster, yeah. It's a um, very famous poster. It is a shame that in the f- 15, 16-man ensemble piece, a lot of pe- a lot of voices are lost. And that's one of my, my criticisms of the films, um, but we'll come on to that in a bit. Andrews is quite nuanced. Mm. Baker's quite nuanced. Uh, George Baker, that is, as, as, yeah. as Butler. Um, Harry Landis is doing great work as, as Rabin. Oh, he's a standout. He has to be. Yeah, yeah. And Christ even says at the end of the film, like he, all, he even says that, the, you know, the war's forgotten. Yeah, you know? I thought that was quite interesting. That is very years interesting. After. But apparently, if you, like, if you read some contemporary history of the Korean War, it is forgotten about quite quickly. Even, um, I, I did a video on my YouTube channel about um, the VCs in Korea. And a veteran, I, when I was um, compiling research for that, he said, you know, people had just, it was a height of rationing. They just had a, just had a major war coming off the back of the World War II. You know, people had it really tough, really hard work. And they didn't want to read about some, some conflict in a place they'd never heard of. For me, that summed up the, the cultural thing at the time. You know, unless you had someone who was involved in it, it might not, you might not even, even looking at, for this review, even looking up Imjin stuff, um, for something else I'm working on, it's on the front page, but it's it's boxed off to the corner. Unless it's a huge event, it's like sort yeah. of, yeah. And some and there's some fighting going on in Korea. You know, today on a hill in Korea. Yeah, exactly. That it's that. It's, it is literally that, which is it's a shame. But yeah, at least I like the movie picked that up, at least. It's a criminally underappreciated piece of British post-war cinema, I think, because, you know, it's a classic Last Stand movie, mm. of, you know, that subgenre of war movies. Um, so it's important in that respect. But it's also important that it's the only real on-screen portrayal of British troops in Korea, criminally so. Um, you know, sadly, the film's relative obscurity mirrors sort of like the public awareness. I think you're right. Of the war itself. Yeah despite you know recognition of it being a forgotten war for like over a decade and even christ even like hinted in the dialogue of the film you know we still haven't seen any real efforts to explain the conflict contextualize it you know tell the story of the men actually fought in it not on the british side at least you know there's been american efforts and And there's not that many american efforts there's probably more south korean movies made obviously more south korean movies made about the, the korean war than our british or american ones but i find it very interesting you know even looking up documentaries, there's one on the Imjin that was the BBC did in 2000. If you can, it's on YouTube. If you can, if you can root it out, it's worth a watch because it's really good. But I don't know how something like this hasn't spawned either not a remake, but either someone going, oh, actually, that war's very interesting, and you could tell a good story from it. The Imjin story itself. If you want to do a Last Stand film, you do the Gloucesters on Gloucester Hill. 
read up on the battle for 20 minutes you're it's hooked it's it's so engrossing you know read the book to the last round by andrew salmon if you really want to get to grips with the battle so it's an absolutely fantastic read as i mentioned at the start it makes me wish for that gloucester's film we never got i think a healing career is an attempt Mm. perhaps sort of tell that story but you know obviously within the budget available of course yeah i think you're right yeah i think they're trying to take elements of the war and that battle itself and meld them into a small mm. unit sort of story. But even from a point of view of, of actors, you, you're like, well, you've got Robert Shaw, you've got Michael Caine, Harry Andrews, Stan Baker. Even if you're a film of cinema, this is an interesting film to watch because you get to see all these actors before they didn't have to try. And I don't mean in the sense of they, as they got older, they got worse actors. But I mean, these are actors who are just trying to like do a job. And it's sad that the only recognition the film actually gets now is as Michael Caine's first on-screen credit. It's very true. But yeah, I think that Hill in Korea is the only portrayal of British troops in Korea is a travesty, I think, really. Yeah, I think that's probably what we're going to end on, really. It's a bit of a sombre end to the podcast, but... But it's a great film and you should you should seek it out, even though perhaps the limitations of its pacing... And there's possibly too many actors. I found that as a as a one criticism that I have is as an ensemble piece, not everyone gets enough to say, and then some yeah. people have too much to say, so people get lost. I don't want to say you should kill them off, but if you kill off half the platoon in that first engagement with Brens, then you could possibly open up more avenues for more characterization. But then, you know, perhaps that's just not the story they wanted to tell, or that's not how the book told the story. So I understand. The general issue with the pacing is you you get that brilliant sort of set piece with the Brens mm. at about 30 minutes in, and then you have them making their way back to the village and then up to the temple. And there's important plot points within that, you know, like why it throws away the radio. Yep. Um, there's discussions about, you know, them trying to get back to li- the you know, British lines. Um, and the, the cohesion of the unit breaks down a little bit because they're tired and they're on edge and they're being pushed very hard to yeah. climb up this hill. And then when they finally get up there, they realise there's actually their lieutenant has led them up this hill where there's no way off it other than the way they, they, they came up <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, and then that's where those important discussions of regular soldier versus uh, national servicemen mm. and the class element comes out. So really, I think that could have all been sort of like drawn out a little bit earlier, mm. perhaps. Because mm. I think it ramps you up too much with that Bren section. And you're mm-hmm. thinking, right, this is going to be a balls to the wall action adventure now. Yes. And then it doesn't. And then right at the end, it tries to replicate that. And it just doesn't doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, I mean, the, the Cromwell and, and Bazooka scene's great. Mm. You don't get any more of those human wave attacks. No, you don't. If, if they perhaps thrown in a couple of those human wave attacks and, you know, shown a, a Bren going down, you know, it just jammed, you can't, you know, can't get it working. Maybe a bit that's, of hand-to-hand. That's lots of firepower. Yeah, a little bit of hand-to-hand, you know, if the Chinese are getting closer and closer, um, which and they do the kind of at the end. Come. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, you want it to ramp and ramp. Oh my God, they're not going to make it. Airstrike. Oh, we can leave. You know, you want that sort of pressure build and, mm. re- and relief, but you don't really get anything akin to that with a bigger budget possibly obviously they could have done more but they they did what they could and i don't think it still holds up it's still a great film it holds it's up a very fant- well it's a cracker you know and in this in this engine week you do a lot worse because you can't do any better because there aren't any films you should definitely seek it out um it was on 
uh, talking pictures in the UK a couple of weeks ago. And we yeah. did a bit of a live tweet of it. Very exciting to see it on TV. Really good. Talking pictures doing a great job at you know bringing up back those. They are. Um, sort of lesser known and almost becoming mm. forgotten films. But it was great to see it on TV and it was great to sort of like share it with you know everyone else that was watching at the time. Really nice. And it's nice to see that the film is still well loved. It's an important film as a, a starting point for a lot of careers. Yep. And it's also telling a vital story. As I said earlier, you know, it's not a bad film. It's actually, you know, quite enjoyable. And that brain action, wow. You know, Amazing. That, that's unparalleled. So if you can find it, do watch it because it is well worth an hour and 21, you know, of your time. Fantastic. As always, don't forget to leave us a like, a subscription, turn on your notifications if you haven't, because if you don't do that, you might not know when we release a new episode. It is every Wednesday, just in case, that's always a good thing to do. Leave us a written review, and we will catch you in the next one. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.